And good afternoon from Maui, Hawaii. Actually, it's still morning here, 10 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock on the west coast of the United States of America, 4 o'clock Eastern. And I'd like to, uh, first of all, acknowledge that I have very mixed feelings, um, mostly positive, of course, but uh, I'm real excited and enthusiastic by this whole uh, nomination process where, of all places, the United States of America has put a man of color, a person of color, uh, on the ballot for President of the United States, Democratic Party. Barack Obama, and uh, however you may feel about the contest between Barack and Hillary, uh, we may have some John McCain supporters here, I, I, I don't know, but in any event, we would have to acknowledge, regardless of our partisan leanings or our political stripes, what a momentous occasion it is to have a, a non-European running for President of the United States. Uh, the Western world has been run by European men from time out of mind. This is a very different situation, and so I just want to acknowledge it. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the United States, actually. And uh, I'm not surprised that uh, Obama's popularity is directly proportional to education. And we see the big problem with the uneducated people of our society again. Uh, that uh, uh, we may have problems of racism and institutional racism in this country, but uh, they're really rooted in fear and ignorance. And as listeners of uh, this event, this webinar, know, um, that's pretty much core metaphysics and part of the ageless wisdom that the only enemy is really fear and ignorance, that all of our problems are rooted in fear and ignorance. And so the antidote, of course, is peace and understanding. And we want to create that from the inside out, not, not try to create a, a world of peace so that I can understand, but create within me peace that I might under, you know, better understand and then give that to the world. So it's an exciting week. It's a very exciting week. And uh, whatever your political aspirations and feelings and hope you get involved is a very, very important time. And I think everybody agrees we got to get Bush and Cheney out. <laughs> it's just too, too insane with the energy prices. People say everything's going wrong. I think Bush and Cheney got exactly what they wanted. So anyway, on to better things. And uh, today our topic is Intelligence and the two types of intelligence, thoughts and feelings. Mental intelligence, yeah, we know about mental intelligence because y'all went to school. There you go. But what the heck is emotional intelligence? You know, people say, in fact, I've dealt with the contradiction in, in my own mind. Uh, emotional intelligence, my God, what is emotional intelligence when I get emotionally worked up? Not only am I not intelligent, but uh, I lose my intelligence, it seems, when I'm emotionally worked up. Whether it's uh, positive, you know, joy and extreme happiness and hilarity, uh, uh, we could make some bad decisions then, too. But more often, anxieties and fears and stresses support all the 
so-called negative feelings. And when we're angry or just confused, we're hurting, we're upset, we're lonely, even apathy is a negative emotion that, that hurts. Um, feeling of frustration and irritation. Uh, when when we're worked up emotionally in a negative way, even more, uh, our intelligence goes right out the window. So we end up doing things and saying things that we regret and resent. So what the heck is emotional intelligence? Well, I think where we need to begin today to discern between the two is to understand that emotions have to be managed by a discerning mind. The mental nature is sort of the chairman of the board here between the mental, emotional, and physical, the three parts of man. The the mind is the chairman of the board. Each affects the other. Any change in our thinking affects our feelings and our behavior. Any change in our emotions is going to impact our thinking and our behavior. And if you just go out and change your behavior, well, that's going to affect the way you think and feel. So in this triangle or this trinity in man, the lower correspondence, as we've described it before, mental, emotional, and physical, any change in any one of those areas is going to affect the other two. Nevertheless, a disciplined and intelligent woman or man understands that when it's time to purposefully reason, to feel, to, to, to think, to understand mentally or emotionally, and then to take a purposeful, directed action requires a certain order, and that order has to be mental, emotional, and physical. Of course, there's an interplay initially. As we go throughout our day, there's a feeling that leads to a thought, and there's a thought that leads to a feeling, and in the interplay of thought, thought, feeling, thought, feeling, 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 thought, thought, feeling, <laughs> and, and all of that back and forth, it's very important that as clear-thinking, intelligent people, we do it in the right order. You know, when it comes down to taking an action, it's got to be a, a clear, specific, detailed mental idea, what Plato called ideation, uh, and that constitutes the energy. And then you impact, secondly, the emotion. This is where you care about something, where you bring your, your passion and your belief and your faith, your expectation into the mix. And this emotional nature becomes the force, and that creates an outcome, energy, force, and substance, a substantial outcome, okay? So having said that, there is such a thing as emotional intelligence, but again, it requires that the mind calm the emotional waters, so to speak, and it's only when our emotions are balanced and even and calm and we're feeling them in a rather peaceful place. I want to say detached, but not dissociated, okay? Detached is just that one step back to get the bigger picture so that you can understand, let's say, oh, your anger without being an angry person. You see, 
if we're reacting to anger or jealousy, <clears throat> hatred or envy, and we're caught up in the emotion, then there's very little emotional intelligence available to us. But when we use the mind to discern that, to calm that, to say, hold on here, take a breath, relax, calm down. Now, an angry person becomes less angry, but can look at the anger with discernment and understand, take responsibility for, realize why they're angry and what it says about us. That's really critical to understanding emotional intelligence. If you think simply that your emotions are done to you by other people, then you're going to try to understand the person that is making you feel this way that you say you don't want to feel. That's part of fight-or-flight response, know the enemy. But your emotions are evoked from you. They're very personal. They're the essence of subjectivity. And so what has to be done as part of this process of establishing and developing your emotional intelligence is a mental discernment of those emotions in a calm and quiet state. And then accepting ownership and responsibility for the fact that this is your emotion. And even if somebody, as we say, made us feel this way, well, the feeling is evoked from us. They may have stimulated it by something they said or did, but nevertheless, it's subjective. The feelings, the emotions are very, very personal. So let's review mental intelligence real quickly, and then we'll come back to emotional intelligence, and then we'll talk about some of the differences between thoughts and feelings. I think you're going to like this a lot, and it'll give you plenty to talk about with your friends, too. This whole idea of developing intuition. Uh, but first, let's, let's review what we should have learned in school about the mental nature, about our ability to think logically and rationally and to be reasonable. This is what people say to us. They say, you've got to be reasonable. You know, use your head, man. Think for yourself. Fill your boots. Uh, you've got to be rational. You've got to be logical and reasonable. Well, what does all of that mean? Actually, there's two kinds of logic. And the first, we rely upon ex almost exclusively. That's deductive logic. There is something called inductive logic, but uh, few people know how to do it or do it very well. So let's put the emotional intelligence off to the side. We'll come back to it, of course, and lay the groundwork here, make the approach with just a little review of what we should have all learned in school about the nature of mental intelligence. First, logic as deductive thought. This is what most people mean by rational thinking. To be reasonable is to deduce. Now, you probably remember from math, to deduce or to deduct is to subtract. Essentially, deductive thinking, what most people think of as logic, is a take-apart process. Uh, if you take classes in logic or reasoning, uh, they will talk about the general to specific flow of deductive logic. Those are the, that's the key phrase. 
logic, deductive logic, what most people mean by being reasonable is to go from general to specific, to understand something by taking it apart. A great example of this that I've used for years, some of you have heard me say this, I'm sure, is ordering from a menu is a deductive process. Because while you think <laughs> what you're doing when you order uh, lunch or dinner from a menu is choosing what you want, the process is deductive, general to specific. That is, first you eliminate what you don't want. You look over the menu in a general way, perhaps, and say, well, it's uh, early afternoon, and I already had eggs for breakfast, so I'm going to skip the breakfast menu. And, um, well, it's lunchtime. I could have lunch, but I'm really hungry. Maybe I'll look at the dinner menu. But you eliminate some of those things as you continue because you don't care for that. You know, sometimes I have a big salad. I don't want that today. I'm looking for something I haven't had in a while. And you keep eliminating, deducing. This is why it's deductive. General to specific, it's like narrowing it down, you know, whittling it away little by little. And you get down to two or three items that look pretty good, and then you grab one and go for it. You, you, you really don't choose what you want without a whole long deductive, logical process of eliminating what you don't want. This is the essence of algebra, is it not? Is not algebra a perfect example of deductive logic where you start with this big formula, you know, A squared minus 43 plus B squared equals 489 or whatever, and how do you solve the problem? You factor. You do the same operation on both sides of the equal sign. You know, let's get rid of this plus 40 over here. Let's put a negative 40 on both sides and see what we do. Let's divide both sides by x squared and see what we can come up with. And as long as you perform the same operation on both sides of the equal sign, it remains accurate and, and valid, but we're subtracting, we're taking it apart. Balancing your checkbook, another example of what most people call logic or deductive thinking. You start with a balance. I've got, you know, $418 in my uh, checking account. I bought gas, so now I have $300 left in my, you know, you subtract what you've spent to arrive at a new lesser uh, total down at the bottom. So these are all examples of logic. We approach most of our problems with deductive logic, which is to take things apart. If something doesn't work, you either physically take it apart to find out why it's not working, or mentally uh, break it up into pieces and go through the little pieces. That's pretty much it for most people. That's the end of it. Okay, That's thinking. That's reasoning. That's being rational. That's deductive, general to specific logic. Now, there is something called inductive logic. Actually, Sir Francis Bacon in the 15th and early 16th century um, gets credit. Um, no, I didn't say that right. It actually be 1500s, early 1600s, so 14th and 15th century in England. Sir Francis Bacon um, usually gets credit for being the father of inductive logic. And inductive logic, though it's often 
not taught as such, we all know it in one way or another. I'll tell you what it is, and then we'll talk about how it's misused and why you have to be very careful when you use inductive logic. If deductive logic, which we've already discussed, is general to specific, then inductive logic is its complement, specific to general. Okay, This is the extrapolation, the extension. This is often an if-then statement. A classic example of inductive logic would be if every crow I've ever seen is all black, then all crows must be black. You see, what's wrong with that? Well, it's a function of the set that you begin with, a function of how many crows you've seen. If I've only seen in my life 18 crows and they were all black, and I'm going to assume therefore they're all black, that's, that's a stretch. That's you know, an extrapolation or an extension based on very little information, just anecdotal information. And so in these cases, inductive logic is often a crutch or an excuse for stereotype and bias, you see. Um, well, every Irishman I've ever known was uh, a drunk and liked to fight. Uh, how many have you known? Four of them. Therefore, all Irish must be blah, blah, blah. You see the danger of inductive logic. If, on the other hand, though, you're scientific about it, and let's say you're studying birds and you've seen thousands and thousands of crows and they were all black, and you looked at the literature and other people were studying these birds, and they've never seen a crow that wasn't black, and you assemble all of this information, then with a big enough you know, significant statistic to pull upon, it gets increasingly safe to say that all crows are black. If every crow ever observed is black, then all crows must be black. That's the nature of inductive logic. It's not creativity. Okay, It is logic. It is deliberate. It is uh, purposeful. Um, but it's the, the complementary kind of reasoning to the much more common deductive thought. So deductive is general to specific. Inductive is specific to general. Okay. Creativity is, again, um, not taught very well, I don't think. I was, uh, I was pretty mature, I think probably in high school or maybe even college, before I began to realize that creativity was not limited to art class or music class, that somebody could be creative in an empirical science, for example. We could be creative in mathematics. We could be creative in geometry and trigonometry. We could be creative in physics and chemistry. Uh, even today, most people think, well, how could you be creative? A fact is a fact. We don't really understand creativity, which is this uncanny ability we have to realize something out of the blue, to be either thunderstruck or just experience the dawning of a new idea. And creativity really is very closely allied to the intuitive nature or the emotional nature. And this is where we begin to, to 
transition really into emotional intelligence. It's difficult to be creative on demand, you know, because the harder we try to be creative, the harder we try to 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 do the mental operations that we do in deductive or even inductive logic, the higher the brain waves go, the more stressed we get and the less likely we are, the less likely we are to realize anything creative or intuitive to get one of those aha lid lifting experiences. So as we move now from mental intelligence into the idea of emotional intelligence, you have to understand that, as I said before, these emotions need to be discerned and calmed, uh, tranquilized, if you will, by the mental nature. And in that calm and quiet state, in a state of peace and relaxation, feeling very safe and very comfortable, you're much more likely to realize a creative insight or something brand new out of whole cloth. And the part of that that is less a thought than a feeling is really what we call intuition. So the simplest way to describe emotional intelligence is the sixth sense, the so-called intuitive nature. You have five physical senses, and then a sixth sense, the intuition that is more emotional than physical, more emotional than mental. Okay. Now, let's delineate some of the striking differences between thoughts and feelings, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how to establish and develop your emotional intelligence if you have questions, of course, put them into the box. I'd love to respond to any questions you have on this topic. And if we have time, maybe other topics as well. And, uh, of course, we'll do a little guided imagery exercise, a visualization exercise at the end of the session today. Here are some of the important distinctions. And for those of you who like to take notes, uh, this would be a good place to write a few things down. Uh, first of all, well, there's, real, there, there's really no order to this, but a um, where do where do I want to begin? I guess I'll begin with the stunning big difference, the 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 biggest and most stunning difference I think between mental and emotional intelligence is that mental intelligence can be wrong, and emotions, emotional intelligence, is never ever wrong. Wow, that's so big. Even if you don't believe it or don't understand it, write it down if you can. You know your thoughts can be wrong. You've taken tests where you got answers marked wrong that you thought <laughs> were right, you know. Even at the DMV, they tell you, well, there's more than one right answer. You have to find, you have to find the best right answer. And you say, well, I think it's this one. And, you know, in a sense it was right, but it wasn't the best right. Or maybe you were just wrong. I think, you know, how'd you do on the test? Well, I got an 87. I got 13 points wrong. I thought they were right. You see. So, 
it sort of goes without saying that a thought can be easily right or wrong. But what's stunning is the idea that emotional intelligence is never wrong. Could that be? Do we have uh, a type of intelligence available to us that is not taught in schools that the vast majority of human beings never honor, and yet it's always true, it's always right? Now, it's possible to misunderstand the feeling. It's possible, obviously, to misinterpret the meaning of a feeling or the implications or consequences of feelings. We can be mistaken in that regard. But the feeling itself could no more be wrong than a physical feeling in your body. Have you ever had a, a physical discomfort that was wrong? You know, like, um, gosh, I've been reading all day and my eyes are tired and I'm starting to get a little headache, but... I don't know, maybe those feelings are wrong. I'll just keep reading. Well, now, <laughs> well, now wait a minute. You can't have a physical feeling that's wrong, whether it's pleasure or pain or some sort of discomfort. Uh, a physical feeling is never wrong. It's always an accurate uh, indication of something going on in your physical body, and so it is with emotions Emotional feelings cannot be wrong. We can be confused as the one who interprets or attempts to understand the meaning of our feelings, and the biggest confusion for the vast majority of us is that the feeling tells me about the stimulus. If somebody makes me angry, as I said earlier, well, this feeling must be telling me that that person who is making me feel this way is a such-and-such such or a so-and-so, all right? And I should have known that this person, blah, 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 or raises the question, why would this person make me feel this way, blah, blah, blah. Emotional intelligence really begins here with an understanding, as I said before, of personal responsibility and ownership, that whoever or whatever stimulates an emotional feeling the intelligence in it, the understanding, can only be found if you're willing to see it as indicative or symptomatic of your own personal condition. So if that person made you angry, the question is not what can I learn from this angry feeling about them, although that's the tendency of most people, but what can I understand about myself? about the way I feel. This is critical. <clears throat> In other words, if this person that said the thing that made you angry said that same thing, that same statement, to a dozen other people, they would get a dozen different reactions. They might be similar reactions, but the feelings that would be evoked in each case would run the gamut, perhaps from rage to apathy to maybe even compassion. Somebody's trying to make me angry. I feel sorry for them. They're pitiful and, and, and have compassion. So there's a full range of responses and that's what emotions are. Emotional intelligence is your personal response. So we begin with the idea that mental intelligence can be wrong. I thought it was right, but I was wrong. 
Emotional intelligence could be misunderstood, but it's never wrong. Okay? Pretty far out. The next thing we have to say about the difference between mental and emotional intelligence is that mental, and this is also very, very important, mental intelligence is, by its nature, objective. And emotional intelligence is essentially subjective. Simply said, mental intelligence is about the object in your life, that thing over there, or that person here, or that group, or this event, or this circumstance. It's about the world around you. Indeed, that's what school teaches you about. School doesn't teach you about yourself, to to honor your individuality, to be responsible for who you are in the world, to make choices in the area of values and ethics. They don't, school doesn't teach you any of that stuff. It's about the objects in the world around you. It's about whether it's about the history or or foreshadowing the future or even sometimes about something relevant and current and, and present. It's about the stuff around you. Your thoughts are designed. You know, the whole idea is your mental intelligence is designed to tell you about the world around you. And when you think about yourself, when you take this objective intelligence and misapply it and try to understand yourself through your thoughts, all you get is a bunch of criticism. You get this internal judgment of who I am. And a lot of it pulls upon false assumptions from childhood that I'm just basically stupid or inadequate or ugly or clumsy or I'll never be any good at that or no son of mine will do this or no daughter of mine is going to blah, blah, blah. Okay. You can't really understand yourself with thoughts. I mean, a little bit of thinking about yourself is necessary, right? But we all know about the internal critic and the the self-loathing judgment that comes from an examination with the mental nature of the self. So that's not what your thoughts are for. Primarily thoughts are for understanding the world around you. Hence the emphasis in school. They only want to teach you about the world around you. When we say emotional intelligence, your emotional feelings are essentially subjective. They are the essence of subjectivity. Emotional intelligence is about the subject of your life. Mental intelligence, the objects around you. Emotional intelligence, the subject, that's you. You're the subject. Okay? And so just as Thinking about yourself is sort of a blind alley and doesn't get you any place. Understanding others from feelings doesn't really work either. Though there is such a thing as empathy, it requires that we first understand ourselves. So feelings as the essence of subjectivity is a way to know the self. Look at it this way. If... uh, if we were to use only our thoughts to understand ourselves, as I've already described, and we become critical and judgmental, doesn't that make sense? Since logic, the mental intelligence, really is critical judgment. It compares and it competes and it contrasts. 
that's what logic does. But you're incomparable. Each of us has fingerprint evidence and DNA proof that we're one of a kind. We're different than others. So if I try to use my mental nature, my my objective thinking, my logic to understand myself, it's never really going to work because I am not that. I am this. I am not another. I'm like others in some ways, but mostly I'm unlike others in most ways. <laughs> okay. So if the mental nature of logic and reasoning is a lot of judgment and comparison and contrasting, and we're incomparable, you can see we have to have been given by design, by our designer, by our source, by our evolution, by nature, whatever your model, we have established a different kind of intelligence dedicated just to the self because we're not like anybody else. We're incomparable. And so to know ourselves, we have to use emotional feelings. Mental intelligence, which you learned in school, logic, deductive and inductive, okay, is to know the objects in the world around you. Apply it to the self, it has very limited value. You just get into a lot of self-criticism and self-loathing. Emotional intelligence is subjective. It's about the subject. It's about me. My feelings are evoked from me. They are intimate representations of who I am, who I've been, who I'm becoming, who I am, based on my uniqueness of feeling. Okay, So these are the two biggest distinctions of all that uh, mental intelligence can be wrong, emotional intelligence is never wrong, though it could be misunderstood. And mental intelligence is objective about the world around us, and emotional intelligence is subjective. It's really about us. These are the two primary distinctions when it comes... There are others, but these are the main distinctions when it comes to understanding mental and emotional intelligence. Okay, so I'm presuming that, you know, you guys are all very intelligent people. I can't imagine that too many people would be attracted to a seminar, a webinar, a program like this if they weren't really intelligent. We have to ask ourselves, though, what is our primary interest? It could vary from time to time, but uh, to what extent are we imbalanced in caring about the world around us and forgetting to check in with the self. And uh, are there people out of balance the other way? Well, of course, so self-concerned and, and so interested in only themselves that they lose track of their sense of community, of, of friendship, of, of uh, relationship to the world around them, to other people and uh, community circumstances and events. So we have to find the balance. We have to find a blend. Having said that, is there an order? Yeah, there is an order. Emotions first, then thoughts. What do you mean, Michael? Well, this is where, you know, we talked a little bit about empathy. How would you know? Look, let me put it to you this way whether we think of ourselves as Christians now or being raised in a 
Judeo-Christian heritage were Americans. For the most part, we may have some non-Americans on the line here today, but essentially we've been exposed to Judeo-Christian and especially Christian values and ethics. There's a great deal in the New Testament about judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Or he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Or people who live in glass houses and all of that stuff. Now, that's a pretty darn good uh, admonition, don't you think? Um, don't be hypocritical. Uh, watch out for those double standards. Don't think you're superior to other people or inferior to other people. You're not better than. You're not worse than. You're different from. You get this clearly, and all those problems fall away. Okay. Some people are better at you in some things and not as good as you in other things. But the idea of superiority or inferiority in a general sense is ridiculous. You're just unique. <laughs> You're different from. And that's, you know, the most important part of that. That pretty much settles that whole thing. But what's meant by judge not? I mean, we have to judge every day, don't we? We have to make judgments about this or that. You know, do I buy the big bag of rice or the small bag of rice? Do I fill up the car now or do I just put in $10 and uh, remember when you put in $10 of gas and then <laughs> you know I, I come into an intersection and the traffic light turns orange do I continue or do I slam on the brakes we have to make judgments all the time so what is this judge not stuff I really think that's what that, that what's being described here is don't Use your thoughts and your your mental nature, your judgments, to understand, to judge other people and try to understand them as a means of knowing something about yourself because they are not you. In some ways they may be, but essentially, fundamentally, we're all unique. And so you can't understand yourself from judging other people. Oh, it has an appeal. It looks risk-free and sort of safe. I don't have to look at myself. I don't have to understand myself. Uh, I'll just judge others, and then I'll, you know, carefully compare and contrast, you see. Why, why the admonitions not to judge? Because you can't know them that way, okay? You can know them objectively, and you can look at the differences, but it doesn't really reflect upon you, right? When we say it takes one to know one, we're talking about emotional intelligence. How would you know? You know, if your if your judgments are not mental, but if we turn the whole equation around, as the Greeks said, know thyself. You know, Lao Tzu in China said the same thing. One who knows others is wise, but one who knows oneself is enlightened. Or Shakespeare in Hamlet, to thine own self be true, and then as the day follows the night, thou canst not be false to any man. Get it straight. Be true to yourself. Know yourself. Love yourself. Trust yourself. Explore yourself. And you have to use, not the mental intelligence so much, as the emotional intelligence we're talking about today 
to better understand the self. And then you can have empathy for other people. That's the only way really to understand others is through empathy, through emotional intelligence and what it tells you about yourself that you can then see in other people. Don't judge them. Empathize. Even if you hate somebody, even if somebody angers you, even... I could even say, especially if somebody angers you or threatens you. What, you know, find the shadow in you. Find the dark side in you. Find the Bush Cheney in you. You see. If you want to understand those people, <clears throat> then you don't have to judge them. You can understand them much more deeply. So, when it comes to the world around us, I think you have to rely on your thoughts to a large degree. And to whatever extent we want to understand other people through empathy, it's got to be know thyself first. And that's where the emotional intelligence comes in. Then you can understand the best in other people and the worst in other people. One of the secret uh, fundamental principles, of course, of the wisdom the perennial philosophy and uh, psychotherapy, even social work, is the way in which we mirror each other. Again, how would you know? Somebody judges somebody else in the third person, thinks to themselves, well, how would they know? You know what is that judgment based on? And it's interesting, when, when, it, when it comes purely from a mental judgment of another, Notice, again, how it tends to be critical and separative. But when it comes from an emotional place, when it's empathetic and not judgmental, even if what we're empathizing with in this other person, what's coming up for us is first about us, and then we recognize it in them, whether it's positive or negative, it tends to be much more compassionate, doesn't it? Uh, the edges are taken off, and all the little points are rounded. Uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're just more, we're softer when we come from an emotional place, when we empathize with a person. Again, that could be something wonderful. I really empathize with their experience. Why? Well, I went through a similar experience. Mine was different, but I have a you know, pretty good idea what they've gone through. It's not just a matter of I sympathize, but I empathize. Sympathy, empathy. We could even go to telepathy, but I want—I don't want to go too far afield with this. Sympathy is I'm trying to understand, but I haven't really been through it myself. Empathy is, yeah, I can pretty much relate to that. I've having gone through that myself. But even if you're empathizing with somebody. Uh, who represents your shadow or your dark side, somebody who's who's being angry and threatening or just downright greedy or evil or, or, or whatever. It comes from a more compassionate place when it's emotional intelligence and it's done in that order. Okay. So, yeah, we have to judge. But there's a difference between judging circumstances and events and and, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, actually, I think it was Doreen, my wife, said to me one day when we were talking about this, about 
not judging other people. She says, well, you know, we try not to judge others. We'd rather empathize. But, of course, that doesn't mean you let a convicted pedophile babysit your kids, you know. And, well, I didn't want to be judgmental. Well, that's just stupid. Sometimes we have to judge. It's just not an effective way to know yourself. I think that's what those New Testament admonitions are really about. Don't judge others if you think that's some sort of safe and and low-risk way to understand who you are. It's not going to work because you're not them, and whatever you learn about them may or may not apply to you. But to know yourself first through emotional intelligence and then empathize with others, that makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. So these are some of the primary differences. These are really the key differences. Uh, Again, I want to go, as I summarize here, back to the beginning and remind you that there is no emotional intelligence when we are victims of our emotional nature, when our emotions are raging, um, mostly negative emotions, but even a raging positive emotion, you know, great hilarity and hysteria. Uh, is not a place to make important judgments and insights and decisions. And much more commonly, when we're angry or frightened or or, or worked up and hostile, um, again, when an emotion is having its way with you, uh, that's not a time to make important decisions. What we have to do is use the mental nature to discern the emotions. This is the allegory, again, I'll pull on the New Testament today, the allegory of Christ walking on water. Many people interpret that story. There's only two versions in the Bible, and they're both quite different. But many people interpret it as the apostles in the boat are afraid because of the storm. And Christ comes walking over the water, calms the water, and says, what are you afraid of? I'd like to suggest that the apostles in the boat are not afraid because of the storm. I'd like to suggest that the storm represents their emotional nature. It represents the fear that they had when they got in the boat in the first place, the fear and the ignorance that comes from not understanding that you're a spiritual being, that you don't have a soul, you are a soul. A lot of that, of course, is taken out of the New Testament. And so if you get that turned around, then it makes a whole lot more sense. Christ comes walking over the water and he says, what are you so frightened of? There's nothing to be afraid of, you see. So the storm is their fear. And you can develop this allegory. You may have heard me talk in the past about how choppy water or stormy water, any any turbulence in water, which represents the emotional nature, prevents us from seeing into the water. Also prevents us from seeing anything reflected on the surface of the water. But when water is calm, you can see into it. You need to have calm emotions to understand them. You see. Now, that metaphor, that allegory, again, can be developed even further. If you think you can swim, and you jump in the water, and you figure out, just hold on to it, and you, (laughs) you know, your fear response, your anxiety response is tight muscles, and you try to hold on to the water, 
glug, 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 down you go like a rock, right? The only chance you have to be supported by your emotions is to relax, to let go. And then your emotions, like the water, will support you. And many of us have learned to float on our backs in water. So imagine being able to stand and be supported. Now, whether Christ actually did that or whether it's a story really doesn't matter. What matters is that we understand the process and that we aspire to that Christos. We aspire to the fearlessness that is at the heart and soul of spirituality. Do not be afraid of your feelings, even if the core feeling is fear itself. You see, now we're back to Roosevelt. The only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Well, that's always true. It's a little bit of a conundrum, you know, a little confusing at first, but that's what fear is. It's confusion. It's ignorance. So to be afraid of being ignorant is to remain ignorant, you see. Only if we face our fears, use breathing, close your eyes, let go of muscular tension, and then use the quiet mind to create a calm emotional nature and a still physical body. There's the three. Meditation, introspection, reflection, contemplation requires that we quiet the mind, we calm and tranquilize the emotional nature, and sit still. Okay. Then, not only does mental intelligence become more acute, but here comes the emotional intelligence, coming online now, giving you access to this essentially subjective insight into you and to, to, to understand yourself better. Why did that person, quote, make you angry? Why are you feeling lonely one minute and the next minute enjoying the wonderful solitude of being left alone? And then you swing back into loneliness again. Isn't that incredible? I haven't talked about it in a long time, but when I was a much younger man, I did a lot of backpacking, solo backpacking, because I worked on the weekends, and most of my friends worked during the week. And so my days off were during the week when others were working, and I, I, I couldn't find many very many people to go backpacking with, so I did a lot of it alone. I don't recommend it. It's not real smart, uh, but nevertheless, there are some wonderful benefits that accrue, namely solitude. Most people live their whole lives and never go more than a few hours without seeing another person. I mean, think about it for a second. When was the last time you were alone saw no one, spoke, more importantly, spoke to no one for more than a few hours, for more than a day. How about two or three days? Have you ever gone a week and never seen another person, never had a conversation, never said hello? That might be terrifying for a lot of people because it's so unknown. I'm telling you that that experience can be exquisite just remarkable, the solitude, the peace, being left alone, being able to do whatever you want, 
you know, if you're backpacking alone and you see a tree in the middle of a meadow that looks idyllic and somebody ought to be reading the book underneath it, you can go sit there and read your book under the tree and you don't have to put it up for a vote and get everybody to agree with you. Or if you want to leave the trail and and go cross country up to some high mountain lake. You don't have to put it up for a vote. You get to do whatever you want. There is a downside. There is loneliness. And so what constitutes that ebb and flow? What are, what, this is another reason emotions are often portrayed as liquid you know, or mercurial. In alchemy, mercury is the emotional nature. Uh, quicksilver, to change easily, to flow. You know, mercury is a metal technically, but it, it flows like water. That's what's in thermometers, right? The old-fashioned thermometer. So mercury or water, it's the flow, it's the easy change of the emotion that I go from sweet solitude to this empty loneliness and then whoosh back into the solitude again. That's just one example. Our lives, when we're in the city and surrounded by people and in conversation every day. We still have similar flows. It's just perhaps not between loneliness and solitude. It's between this feeling and that feeling, between anger and contempt and, and sadness and then happiness and then sadness again. And, you know, sit with your feelings. The Buddha says just sit with the feeling and watch it change. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. I mean, there there are some feelings that carry with them a feeling that I will never, ever go away. I, I think depression is one of those. I feel depression <laughs> is one of those. Depression uh, carries with it an affect that I am here forever. And you can use the mind to answer and say, well, that's not true. I've been depressed before. It didn't last forever. It only lasted for a day or two at most. And, and then it, for some reason often for no reason, just seemed to, to fade away. I was afraid it was going to come back, and then there was a time that it did, but that's of little comfort to you when you're feeling the depression, because in the moment, that depression carries that affect. Uh-uh, I'm not going anyplace. I'm going to be with you forever. It's one of the difficult aspects of depression. But whether it's depression or any other so-called negative feeling, any feeling that hurts and represents things unknown, what we have to do is not push it away, but look at it. And you have to calm the waters if you're going to see into them. Don't, don't you see that calm waters you can see into? You can also see what stands above you and is reflected on the surface once the water, once the emotional nature is calm. So, yeah, I think it's obvious to us that if we're emotionally worked up, if we're mentally confused and stressed in in, in all ways, physically carrying tension in our body, that um, that our logic suffers from the stress and anxiety, but not nearly as much as emotional intelligence. Excuse me. Emotional intelligence suffers more, is much more a victim of stress and anxiety. These emotions can get big and overwhelming and even seem like they're going to consume us. And we want to turn and run the other way because they feel dangerous. But 
emotional intelligence requires that we face the feeling, face the fear, face the hurt, look directly into the heart of darkness, and move into it. Okay? Stand open to it, but not in normal states. Not in normal consciousness where the mind prevails and tries to judge everything. But slow deep breath, close your eyes, let go of muscular tension, relax. Brain waves change. The relationship of the conscious to the subconscious, of the left brain to the right brain, physiologically, all kinds of changes take place when we relax. The mind becomes quiet, the emotions become calm, and things become more apparent to you. This is intuition. It might come, as I said before, as a light bulb popping on. Aha! It might be a much slower process, the dawning of a new idea. If you've ever sat in the early morning darkness and watched the sun come up very slowly, the dawning. Oh, I'm beginning to get it. Hold on here. I'm starting to understand, oh, a little slower than the light bulb popping on. And then on the other end, of course, we could be thunderstruck, you know. I, I quoted Rudolf Steiner a few weeks ago in this in the same uh, line. I really love it. He talks about the the um, eureka illumination, the aha experience of just being, you know, this lid-lifting, thunderstruck, lightning bolt that, Steiner says, not only lights up the entire landscape, your interior landscape, but changes it forevermore. This is a, a realization that, that not just illumines you, illuminates you in the moment, but leaves things forever changed. Your outlook, your understanding, boy, I'll never make that mistake again. Oh my God, I just realized that, you see, so... That's why meditation, contemplation, reflection is maybe not essential to logic, deductive and inductive, but it's really important when we talk about creativity as a mental faculty and our emphasis today, emotional intelligence, which is the sixth sense, the intuitive nature that just is not available if the water is choppy. You can't see into it. We need to relax and breathe and calm ourselves emotionally if we're going to understand it. Well, let me see. We've got, uh, checking the questions here. A lot of folks just popping in to say hi. Um, nice to hear from all you. Carol, John, Dale in Burbank. Hi, Dale. Lorelei is in Huntington Beach. Just wants to say hi. Lisa in Burbank says, apropos to walking on the water, could you say something about the meaning of I cast my bread upon the water? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I'd have to give that some thought, Lisa. I'm not sure what to say about that. I, I think we're all uh, somewhat familiar with the idea of uh, you reap what you sow, and I think casting your bread on the waters, well, I'm not at all sure of the derivation of that. I know the implication, which is whatever you put out, you get back. It also implies a certain degree of faith that there is law behind all things. You know, 
I'll go off on a little tangent, if you guys don't mind, here briefly anyway. Um, my wife, Doreen, and I have been watching um, last night and today two movies about the uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, period in the Renaissance era, not the current Queen of, uh, of England, but the first Queen Elizabeth in the uh, 16th century, would it be the 1500s and into the early 1600s. And um, it's amazing in her battle with Mary, Queen of Scots, and, of course, the battle between the English and the Spanish, the invasion of the Spanish Armada and, and all of that, the role of religion between the Catholics and the Protestants, the Protestants, and um, just how very, very strong that is. And it, I guess what came up for me was this belief in Perpetual divine intervention, as if God is a micromanager. Okay, Elizabeth says, uh, because Mary is contesting the throne, God put me here. Well, okay, <laughs> fine. Uh, doesn't God put everybody every place? But then don't we also have free will? Uh, and, and when the Spanish are defeated, there's a scene in, in one of these movies, that we watched where uh, the Spanish are saying, well, it's your will, God. You allowed the British to sink the armada, and and if this is your will, you know, this makes God into a micromanager. This is the madness of Reverend Hagee and uh, Jerry Falwell, the late Jerry Falwell, and Pat Robertson and Rod Parsley and, and these other guys that that believe that God is a micromanager and intimately involved in this is a medieval concept and yet so many people still believe that, that how, how better to say it than God is micromanaging our affairs uh, wasn't it Falwell and Hagee both that said that uh, I, I remember very clearly Hagee saying that Katrina was a storm, a hurricane, sent by God to destroy New Orleans because they were having too much fun down there, uh, too many parties, and uh, too much tolerance of the gay and homosexual agenda. They were going to have a big gay parade uh, a few days after Katrina hit. Of course, it was called off, but they had the audacity to say that's what God wanted. If you only knew that Katrina destroyed over 1,000 churches in New Orleans and left Bourbon Street, the heart of the decadence and the, and, and the sex and, and the drunkenness and all of that, Bourbon Street was untouched. But 1,000 churches were destroyed, so it, 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 it completely throws into a cocked hat this idea that God is a micromanager and, and, and seeking vengeance, you know, a vengeful God is coming to get you because you're all said, well, then why is he destroying the churches and leaving Bourbon Street untouched? It's just absurd. We need a better understanding of divinity as law, as absolute law, as unmoving, as unchanging. And to bring it back, Lisa, to your great question that I'm really not prepared to answer, but I love the question. Broadcast upon the waters, 
you reap what you sow. What you put out, you get back. Uh, karma, what goes around comes around. You go where you look, all of that stuff. That's law. It's law. And to understand that there are principles of law, spiritual law, consciousness, that we can use is indeed what mysticism and uh, uh, spirituality and philosophy, the, the search for truth, for capital T, truth, is really all about. Discerning these laws, laws of physics like gravity, thermodynamics, electricity and electromagnetism and such, um, these are extensions, if you will, or applications or manifestations of spiritual laws that we describe as metaphysical, that is behind the physics or beyond the physics. Uh, that's what meta usually is interpreted to mean beyond, behind, above, uh, primary to. So laws of physics are just examples of the metaphysical laws behind the veils at work. And so the idea of God is law, not a capricious child that messes around with the weather. And, uh, it's just so medieval and that, and that it's extant in the world today that, you know, there are so-called Christian preachers in this country with the followings of tens of thousands of people who see God not as law, but some sort of uh, micromanager, some some angry being acting out on its creation and standing outside its creation, but manipulating it. It's all it's all very uh, dark and, as I say, medieval. So that's that's the only thing that comes up for me about broadcast on the waters and uh, again is water the emotional nature in that regard I think so I think it probably is that's where faith is faith is less a mental decision than it is emotional part of emotional intelligence well let me refresh this and see if we have any other questions apparently not so we do a time check wow it's already after uh, 11 o'clock here in Maui, so a little after two in the West Coast. Let's do a quick uh, visualization process, a little meditation if you can stick around for another ten minutes and then we'll wrap it up. And we'll talk about in this uh, process I'll give you a technique that you can use to dialogue with your feelings, to have a conversation with your emotional nature, so to speak. And in that way, to better understand what the emotions are saying about you. Remember the subjective nature of emotional intelligence. Continue to use your mental intelligence primarily to know the world around you. It has applications when it comes to knowing self, but be careful. Too much use of the mind, the mental nature, to know the self as an object is just going to be more criticism and more negative self-talk, self-loathing, feelings of inadequacy come out of that, and it just cycles around. Uh, the, The idea of meditating and using emotional intelligence to better understand yourself 
is any one of a number of processes, but I'm going to offer you one example of how to develop that intuitive nature, okay? Take some ownership for your feelings. So provided that it's appropriate, take a nice slow deep breath and close your eyes. Exhale slowly and feel the letting go in your body. As you take another nice slow deep breath in through the nose, Filling yourself with strength and power, hold as you peak. As you exhale, just as slowly through the nose or the mouth, feel the letting go in your body. And as you allow your breathing to become natural, to just find its own rhythm and its own cadence. As you allow your body to breathe itself, all by itself. Put your attention on the bottom of your nose, gently and effortlessly, and spend a few moments just witnessing your body breathing itself. Reflect upon the fact that you are the one who could choose consciously to take another slow, deep breath, or to let go and sometimes called involuntarily, allow your body to breathe itself. You are the one that chooses to do that. Contemplate that choice of asserting yourself and being willful or just standing open and receptive and noticing that your body is perfectly capable through the brain of breathing itself and your heart beats by itself. You don't have to check in. And body temperature and blood pressure and thousands of other reactions and responses are happening in your body. Food is digested. Cells are repaired and replaced. Disease is being fought. Whether you're awake or asleep, 24-7, all of this goes on. And you are the consciousness that stands behind it and above it and can let go and relax and be the witness of this process. In the same way, you can witness, now that it becomes naturally quieter, this little thought stream not only my statements and my speech, but the little thoughts in your head that spin off what I'm saying. You're not the thought, you're the thinker. And you can watch that process. In the same way as we detach, as we unclutch, let go and step back, to get the bigger picture, we can see in that thought stream an emotional stream as well. We can feel those feelings, usually between the heart and the hips, the so-called solar plexus, the belly button window, the, the, the area behind the navel, the second, third chakra, okay, the belly. And loving feelings aspire to the heart, come up almost to the very heart itself. 
feeling of the heart being open, this equality of charity that has to do with loving others, seeing yourself in all things and the divine in all things. But most of our emotional nature is from just below the heart all the way down to the hips or the groin, the base of the spine. And fear pulls us down. Love lifts us up. We're somewhere in that area. Feel a feeling. Feel a feeling. Just sitting quietly and receptive. And your feelings seem now to be rather neutral. Sort of a flat affect. Then allow yourself easily and effortlessly to recall a time in the past couple of days when you felt some sort of negative feeling, some sort of hurt, upset, some sort of longing that aches, not in a sweet way, but in an anxious and nervous kind of a disturbing way. Maybe earlier today, might have been yesterday or the day before, uh, don't make a big deal out of it. Just allow yourself to remember in the last few days the time you were hurt or upset. And as you bring that to mind, as you allow yourself to recall it, let it come upon you. Let it manifest within you. And especially if your mind goes to, well, that feeling was caused by this person or this event or this circumstance or this group. Let that go. You already know that. Fine, they stimulated. But go to the feeling itself. Let that feeling have its way with you. And realize that it has been evoked by the stimulus. That it comes from deep within you. That this feeling, so-called negative feeling, is really quite valuable and quite intelligent. It's a, it's a symptom, like a physical pain or discomfort is a symptom. It's rich. And even though it hurts, it's rich. It's full of information. It wants to tell you something. It's a symptom. It wants to tell you something about you, not about the person that evoked this feeling from you. And ask yourself, if this, if this feeling had a color, what color would it be? And trust your first impression. If this feeling, your set of feelings, had a color... What's the first color that comes to mind? And if, without moving physically at all, just imagine yourself now carefully reaching out to tentatively touch this color that represents this feeling for texture or temperature. How does it feel to the touch? Give this emotional feeling or set of feelings that you're now recalling so clearly have a color, a texture, a temperature. Imagine you can hold it in your hands. If the feeling is too hot or too sharp or prickly 
or uncomfortable for some reason, put on a pair of gloves as you hold it in your hands. But in most cases, you'll be able to hold it gently in your hands. Protecting this feeling as a symptom, as a reflection of you. Caring for it as you would care for a small baby animal. Don't push it away. Don't ignore it, deny it, or throw it away just because it hurts and irritates and upsets us. All the more reason to want to understand it, to care about it, to nurture it, and to give it life. That we might understand what it represents, the whole process, is to use our emotional feelings to understand ourselves. All of the joy and the happiness and the peace and the love, any so-called positive emotional feeling, represents things we already know to be true about ourselves. Anything that hurts or upsets us, a so-called negative feeling, is an indication of something as yet unknown about ourselves. So face the heart of darkness. Face the fear. Look at this color, texture, temperature, and ask it a simple question. Silently and internally hold in your mind the question ever so gently. What are you here to teach me? What is my personal growth lesson? Help me to better understand myself. And wait a few seconds. Do that now. And it only takes 10 or 15 seconds before something pops into your head. It may be a gradual dawning. It may be a light bulb coming on. You might be struck as if by lightning. Oh, my Lord, a lid lifting. Wherever it stands, let the light come. Oh, it feels like, oh. It's self realization and if you seem frustrated like other feelings are demanding your attention or like the mind won't quiet down yet then simply take another slow deep breath and as you exhale relax even more feel the letting go or imagine yourself slowly walking down the staircase as you count from ten to one, going deeper and becoming more relaxed. And as you do that, the mind must become more quiet. And the emotions will, unavoidably, become more tranquil. And both thoughts and feelings become more available to us as we go deeper and become more relaxed. After a few minutes, two or three minutes, 
say to yourself, as if talking to this feeling you hold gently in your hands, tell me more, you say. Tell me more about myself. dawns or pops into your awareness. You may want to inquire of the feeling you hold so sweetly and gently in your hands. Next time I'm in a similar situation, how can I learn from and remember what you're teaching me here today? Is there anything else you'd like me to know? Speaking to the feeling. Take a few moments to review what has occurred to you. It should be a humbling experience. And tell yourself, well, this will be easy to remember. In a few moments, as Michael brings me back to the awake state and concludes the class for today, it'll be easy for me to remember what I've learned here about myself. And then orienting yourself toward the sound of my voice. Remember physically where you are. Feel the chair or sofa, the cushion upon which you sit. Take a nice, slow, deep breath, filling your lungs with strength and power. And as you exhale, just as slowly and easily and peacefully, open your eyes wide awake and alert, feeling fine, refreshed with a full memory of what you've just experienced feeling as if you had eight hours of sleep, all energized and revitalized and feeling really good about it. Now, the only thing that's left to do is for you to reflect, as you did 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, reflect upon that incident, those feelings, and ask yourself, do they feel the same way they did 10 or 15 minutes ago, or has there been a shift? And I think if not all of you, certainly most of you would have to admit there's been some sort of shift, some sort of change. That feeling is diminished. Maybe it's all gone. There may be a little residual tenderness that'll heal in a day or two. But the confusion the lack of awareness, the thing unknown that supports all negative emotional hurt and upset. Now, being better understood, the hurt doesn't exist. Just like the physical pain, 
discomfort or symptom that you addressed, and now the pain is diminishing. you got a tummy ache. Stop eating for a little while and see if it doesn't go away. That's what you just did with your emotion. You see, this is emotional intelligence. It's the entree, anyway. We're almost out of time, so I'm going to run out of here. Sorry to keep you a little longer than we usually do. We'll never go over 90 minutes, usually 60 to 90 minutes. Uh, looks like everybody stayed with us, though, so I appreciate that. Again, hello. You can still put in a hi on that uh, submit a question box. First name, city. You can ask your question if you'd like. And uh, in any event, say hi. Because most people don't, I only, I, I don't, I know you're there, I have the count, but I don't know who you are if you don't say hi, and it's always nice hearing from you. You can also email me, the best address is probably, for you guys anyway, my initials at myname.com, so mb at michaelbenner.com, okay? And, uh, the web links are at the bottom of the page, in the lower right, the big Button says Wage Inner Peace Now. That takes you to our premium podcast at Focused Passion. Some big changes on the horizon for that. Can't tell you yet, but some very exciting updates are about to happen at Focused Passion. But it's a good idea to get in now for just 99 cents a week. You get the premium podcast every week with Steve and I. And uh, the other links are there. The uh, website uh, the link below that, Audio Archives, takes you to the part of my website where all these past programs are archived, and you can see my profile at LinkedIn, too. And if you're a professional, I really recommend LinkedIn. It's sort of like MySpace or Facebook for grown-ups and professionals. Check out LinkedIn.com. You can uh, look up my profile there. Hey, thanks so much for being here today, and... Uh, also, you can call me if you want more information about private coaching or, you know, a referral or just about anything. Leave me a message anytime, 24-7 on my number, 818-569-3017. Okay, still 818, the old number I've always used, 818-569-3017. And to all of you online, whether by telephone or webinar. Thank you very much for being here today. Join us next week. We're here every Sunday at 1 o'clock West Coast time, 4 o'clock Eastern. Thank you so much. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. God bless. This is Michael Benner. Aloha.